Amen. Thank you, guys. Thank you, guys, so much. Um, what you are looking at in this picture right here is a photograph of your pastor uh, in or around August of 2006 committing a federal crime. Because I am at the Grand Canyon, and I am feeding the wildlife. And I'm sure you know it is against the law to feed the animals at a national park. And not only is it against the law, it's actually a crime that carries with it a punishment of a $5,000 fine and up to six months in prison. And I hope the statute of limitations has run out on that um, because I don't have five grand and I'm not going to do great in prison. But when I think about that, I think, you know, that's a really dumb law, isn't it? I just think, you know, the government says you can't do that, but that's not their squirrel. And that's my cracker. Like, you know, my inner libertarian wants to say, this is just government overreach. And you don't have the right to tell me what I can and what I can't do. And for the record, the squirrel approached me, Your Honor. That's the way that it happened. But if you think about that law, it actually is a good law. Because it's designed to protect animals from eating things they shouldn't eat. I don't know if if squirrels should have peanut butter crackers, but that one did. And that may not be part of their ideal diet. It also protects animals from becoming over-reliant on human beings. He probably was, had no idea what to do when he had to go gather nuts for the winter. Right? Probably didn't make it, poor guy. But it also that law also protects humans from animals. It may be one thing to feed a squirrel at the Grand Canyon, but it's something different when you're trying to feed a grizzly bear in Yosemite, right? That is a good law. And most of us have a relationship with laws of all kinds in life that... We think, you know, it really isn't that big of a deal if we break it. Some of y'all were so excited to get to church today that you just could not obey the legal speed limit, could you? Maybe there's been a time when you have had muscle pain or back pain that's been so severe that you've taken your husband or your wife or your mom and dad or somebody's prescription for a muscle relaxer. There are times when all of us kind of fudge the law here and there a little bit. What about the law of God? You ever look at some of the things God says in His law in the Old Testament and think, that is the craziest thing I've ever heard. How could that possibly be any good? In fact, there are some people, maybe even some of y'all, you think that really all the Bible is is a long list of rules that maybe we should obey. And if we obey them, then God will be impressed with us and God will love us. Or maybe you look at the Bible and its commands and you think, man, that's not for me. I would just rather live life on my own terms. It could be that you know that the law of God is really a little bit more complex than that. But here you are in the year 2020. Can you believe that? The year 2020, of August of 2020, in an American church as a Christian. And you think, what would the Old Testament law, what could it possibly have to do with my life? Well, today we are going to study the 10 most familiar laws, probably the 10 most well-known rules in the history of the world. And we are going to see the law of God. And here's what I want you to understand about the law of God as we go forward today. And that is that the law of God is designed to function as a window into heaven where we see the heart of God. But the law of God is also designed to function as a mirror, mirror, I cannot say window, then mirror, a mirror to ourselves where we see our own heart. The law of God in the Ten Commandments and anywhere it's found, the law of God reflects to us who we are, and it reveals to us who God is. So let's read the Ten Commandments together today. They're found in your Bible in the book of Exodus and chapter number 20. We'll begin reading in verse number 1. And if you're able, I want to ask you to stand with me as we honor God's Word. Exodus chapter number 20 and verse number 1. 
Exodus chapter 20, verse number 1 says, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen. But do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. You can be seated, and we have read the word of our God today. Now, if you want an easy way and perhaps an overly simplistic way to think about the book of Exodus, the book of Exodus kind of falls apart into two major sections. Chapter 1 through 18 reveals to us really what the people of Israel have been delivered from. God in His power and God in His grace, God with a heart full of love and a mind to bless His people, has brought the children of Israel out of slavery in Egypt. After 430 years, He has rescued them and He has brought them into freedom. But beginning in chapter number 19 through the rest of the book, you begin to see what God has delivered His people to. Why did God bring His people out of Egypt? What did He save them for? That's what you begin to see in Exodus chapter 19 and beginning in verse 1, really through the end of the book. And it happens, you can tell in Exodus 19, 1, it happens almost immediately. The Bible says that after the third new moon, God brings the people to the wilderness around Mount Sinai and He's going to begin to give them His law. In just a few weeks, God is going to start saying, here is what I expect of you. And God says to the people, if you look in Exodus chapter 19 and verse number 6, He says that you will be a kingdom of priests. That the people of Israel, this nation would exist the way that any priest existed to make God known to the people. They existed as the mediators of God's presence on earth. They would show the other nations around them, this is who our God is, this is His glory, this is His power, this is His love, this is what God has done for us, and this is what He can do for you. But how are they supposed to do that? What what does God really expect from them? How does God expect them to govern themselves? How are they to interact with one another? How is God expecting them to order their lives? To answer those questions, the people of Israel needed law. 
And so beginning in chapter 20, God begins to give His law to His people as He offers up His expectations saying, this is what I expect you to be and this is what I expect you to do. And it starts here with these familiar Ten Commandments that are the beginning of the law of God, but are also a codification really of everything that God has said before to His people. These Ten Commandments are, I'm sure, familiar to us, and they are in many ways the foundation even today for our American and Western jurisprudence. These are the foundations for a healthy legal society. These are the highest expressions of human morality, and each of them and all of them reveal to us something important about ourselves and something important about our God. So what I want to do is I want to work through the Ten Commandments today. And I want to offer you three big thoughts that we have to have in our mind if we are going to understand them correctly. Because almost everybody values the Ten Commandments, but almost everybody gets them wrong. And they value them in the wrong way and value them in the wrong reasons and do incredible damage when they do. So I want to give you three big thoughts you have to keep in your mind to understand what it means for God's people to be delivered, yes, but delivered to obey. God delivered His people so that they would obey Him. What does that mean for us? Well, the first big thought we need in our minds is we need to understand the context of the Ten Commandments. We need to understand the context of the Ten Commandments. We need to understand kind of the arrangement for where God is going to give His law. And it begins in verse number 1 with God speaking. The people of Israel would look back over their history and at every significant milestone along the way, on their path to redemption, they were all marked by their God who spoke. In the beginning there was nothing and God spoke and then all of a sudden there was something. There was a man named Abraham who was a pagan wandering around in Ur of the Chaldees. And then God spoke and God made that man into a family and then a nation. Moses was a shepherd and a murderer on the run from God and on the run from his destiny until God spoke in the burning bush. And now God has brought the people of Israel out and he is going to speak. And in the words that he speaks and the law that he gives, God is going to reveal his heart to his people. And that is really the first of two massive lessons we need to learn as we think about the context of the Ten Commandments. And that is that God's law reveals God's heart. God's law reveals God's heart. Now, we don't think about God's law that way. We don't think about most rules that way. But if you stop and think about the rules you've had to live under throughout your life, you'll realize that's the reason they're there. There's usually a good reason they're there. Like when you were growing up, your parents probably had a law in your home that you could not cross the road until you look both ways, right? Why did they have that law? Is that because the parents were just trying to pick on you? The parents were just trying to throw their weight around? Why did they have that rule? They had that rule because they loved you and they didn't get, want you to get mashed by a car, right? So you look both ways. It came from a good heart. Even the, the crazy rule that you can't feed a squirrel at the Grand Canyon, that comes from a good place when our government says, hey, nature matters, nature is beautiful, and nature should be maintained, and we don't need you tinkering with it. It comes from a good place. So too, God's law for His people reveals His heart to us. So just think about what the Ten Commandments say to us about God. The Ten Commandments teach us that our God believes that He alone is God and that He alone should be worshipped first in our hearts. The Ten Commandments reveal to us a God who says, I cannot be reduced to the level of your imagination, but you should worship me as I have revealed myself to you. God says in His Ten Commandments, in the law, that He does not want us giving our hearts to anything, real or imagined, 
other than Him. The Ten Commandments say our God is a jealous God who is after not just our behavior, but He's after our hearts. The Ten Commandments tell us that God's name is to be valued. The Ten Commandments say that we should take one day of our week and we should stop our work and rest and enjoy God. Which means underneath that, God believes that He's the one who can tell you how to spend your time. Think about that. God is a God in the Ten Commandments who values family. God is a God in the Ten Commandments who values uh, human life. He's a God who values truth. God is a God who even says you should not covet. God says, I'm the one who has the right to tell you what you can and can't want. Think about that. And as you think about what the law says to us about God, I can't help but think that, man, the Ten Commandments, no human being ever would have came up with these laws. They have to have a supernatural and a divine origin. Now, there are a lot of these laws here that other societies have come up with throughout the course of history. And some of these laws in the Ten Commandments find themselves in ancient, other ancient codes of conduct, like the, the, you know, the laws of Hammurabi and all that kind of thing. But if you think about the Ten Commandments, they present a different character. Now, for instance, the Bible says here in the Ten Commandments, you shall not murder. And I'm just going to be honest. I have a very selfish motive for wanting to live in a society where people think, hey, it's wrong to murder. Because I don't want to get murdered. You know, it's bad for your health, right? The Bible says that, uh, the Bible says here, thou shalt not steal. I want my neighbors to believe that that matters. Because I don't want them taking my stuff, right? But if you notice the Tenth Commandment, what is the Tenth Commandment? The Tenth Commandment is you shall not covet. No human being would ever write that law. Because that is so contrary to our nature, isn't it? It's so contrary to who we are. And honestly, we think, who does it hurt? Murder hurts. Stealing hurts somebody. Who does coveting hurt? God says it hurts you. And therefore, I have the right to govern it. So God's law reveals His character. But I think the second big lesson we need to learn as we think about the context of the Ten Commandments is that God's law is always connected to His redemptive acts. You'll notice in the preamble to the Ten Commandments in verse number 2 that before God gives the Ten Commandments, starting in verse 3, God reintroduces Himself to the people. You see that? In verse 2, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. So what God's going to do, and I want you to understand this. If you're taking notes today, write it down this way. I want you to understand that what God expects of us always comes out of what He has done for us. In other words, if you want it a little bit more simple, do always, or done always precedes do. God says, here's what I have done, and here's what I expect you to do. Because God is going to see this as their personal responsibility to obey the God who has saved them. In fact, if you look in Exodus chapter 20, verse number 2, the pronouns here, they are not plural pronouns. They are second person singular pronouns. So God is not saying to the whole nation, listen, I delivered y'all out of Egypt. I rescued y'all from the house of slavery. But he's saying to each person in the nation, I rescued you. He's saying, you were born a slave. He's saying some of you had your children executed by Pharaoh's henchmen. You were saved by the blood of a Passover lamb that died in your place. You walked through the Red Sea on dry ground. You are a walking, talking, living, breathing miracle. Because of that, you obey. What God expects from us always flows out of what God has done for us. Relationship always precedes the rules. But one of the greatest misconceptions people have about the Ten Commandments is that we get that backwards. 
We think that God has given us the Ten Commandments or any set of rules in the Bible, the Sermon on the Mount or the Golden Rule. We think God has given us these rules and that if we obey the rules, then God will love us. That's how our minds many times are wired to think. That we obey and then God accepts us. Do you know what happens in our hearts when that's our default way of thinking? It makes some people filled with doubt constantly. As they're always insecure, wondering, have I done enough to get God to really love me? Have I, have I completed all the necessary steps to get God to really bless me? That's why Baptist churches across our country, especially across the South, are so filled with people that doubt their relationship with God. Because they think at some level it depends on something they have to do to get God to love them. And if you think that way, it's going to make you bitter. And the reason it'll make you bitter is because there will come a point in your life where you say, I have done everything that God wants me to do, and God has not given me the blessings that I thought I would earn. God's letting my kids suffer, or God's letting my health go down, or God's made all my money in the stock market disappear, whatever. Why is God not keeping up his end of the bargain? Or it could be you look at this and think, okay, if I obey God, he will love me, but who wants to live for a God like that? And so people walk away from the Lord saying, I'll just live by my own set of rules and do my own thing. But this is our default position. This is how we think about God and His law, is it not? And I can prove it to you. Just ask yourself this. Is there any expression in the English language that sounds more like the Bible to your ears than the phrase, thou shalt not? We think that's what God sounds like, right? We think this is, this is how God relates to us. He gives us these rules because God is in heaven up there and he's worried to death that down here somebody somewhere is going to have a good time and he's got to put a stop to it. And so this is how we think about God, that God gives us these rules and then if we obey the rules, then God will love us. But God says that is not the way this works. He says, my past redemptive acts lay the foundation for all of your obedience. Everything that you do comes out of all that I have done for you. Folks, we do not obey God to get Him to love us. We obey Him because He does love us. Our obedience comes out of the great love that He has poured out for us on the cross. And so we can look back like the children of Israel and say, I was born a slave into sin, but God in His grace and God in His power rescued me and delivered me and made me free. And now I want to use that freedom to obey. That's what God is saying here, that as His people, we are not obedient and we're not motivated by a sense of guilt we're motivated out of gratitude god thank you for all you've done and now let me honor you and obey you but if that's god's heart revealed in the law what are we supposed to do with it what is what is god actually saying to us and that's the second big thought you need to keep in mind here we talk about the context of the ten commandments let's talk about the content of the ten commandments what do they actually say to us and so what I want to do is I want to just run through the Ten Commandments, give you a minute, they're about, more or less, probably more, of each of these Ten Commandments, and just see what do these have to say to us. The first commandment is that we should have no other gods before the Lord. See, God knows something about you that you may not have ever thought about, and that is that you are a worshiper before you are anything else. And that you will give your heart to something. And God knows the great propensity we have to turn into idolaters. As John Calvin rightly said, the human heart is an idol factory. That we are constantly just turning out things that we worship. It could be somebody else's opinions of us. It could be our success. It could be 
our independence. It could be any number of things. Anything that we give our affection to and the adoration to that belongs only to God, God says you are worshiping that thing. And do not think for a minute today that you can tell what God you really worship just because you are in a church. This tells you nothing about the God you worship. You have to ask your heart serious, deep questions like, what am I really afraid of losing? What do I have to have in life to matter more than anything else? What am I willing to sacrifice for? What do I really obey in my heart? Those things are your God. And if the answer to those questions is anything but the God of heaven, well, we haven't even made it all the way through one and you've got a problem. The second commandment is that we should not have any graven images. Now, whereas the first commandment is not about worshiping the wrong gods, the second commandment is really about uh, confusing uh, our worship so that we would worship the right God in the wrong way. What God is saying is that you cannot represent me by anything you can imagine. You can't reduce me to the level of pictures or of images. God is saying that you cannot make me like something you can see. God intends for His people to respond to His revelation of Himself, not to their imagination of who He is. And we do this today, uh, probably by painting pictures of Jesus, but we really do this today by saying things like this. Well, I know what the Bible says, but. Or, I know God maybe wants this, but I feel like my God would do that. God does not want you to worship a God you feel good about. Because, hey, I promise you this, a God you feel good about all the time is not the God of the Bible. In fact, if you have a God or a Savior or a Jesus that you feel good about all of the time, not only does He not exist, but it's actually proving that in your heart, you are your God. And you've broken the first commandment again. Congratulations. Now, the third commandment is that we should not take the name of the Lord our God in vain. You ever hit your thumb with a hammer? The altar's open if you need to come <laughs> And certainly the Lord is saying we should not use his name as an expletive. We should not use the name Jesus as a, as a swear word. And, and maybe many of us have done that. But really the idea is, is a little bit bigger than that. That anything that has God's name attached to it is holy because God is holy. And that presents a big problem for us today. And here's the problem for us. Most all of us would say if we are asked that we are Christians. That means that we have taken the name of Christ on ourselves especially if we've been baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And being named for Him matters, and we should live in such a way so that we would never dishonor His name by dragging it through the mud. The fourth is that we honor the Sabbath day. God in the law gave us a day off. Isn't that great? He says, you work hard six days a week, but on the last day of the week, you take that day off. Now, we, most of us, or at least I hope you know that as, as Christians, the early church since the very, very first weeks of Christianity, they honored the Sabbath not on the last day of the week, but on the first day of the week because Jesus resurrected on the first day of the week, which says something incredible about the gospel. Have you ever thought about that? Speak, Lord, for thy servant here. Our weekly routine says something amazing about the gospel, that in the old covenant, God's people worked and then they rested. But you and I rest on the first day of the week. Then we work. Isn't that amazing? But honoring the Sabbath day is God's way of saying, listen, you need to rest and you need to reflect on who your God is, that God is going to take care of you. He does not need your frenetic energy worrying yourself to death and working yourself to death to make a life and to make a living. God is going to take care of you. We violate the Sabbath when we 
live as if God can't provide for us, when we work non-essential jobs and that keep us out of worshiping and fellowshipping with God's people, we violate the Sabbath when we do what I've heard people do in my whole life. You know, well, you know, we didn't come to church Sunday. We was up worshiping God on the lake in the beauty of nature. Hey, you can worship God on the lake. Jesus did all the time. But I'm going to tell you what Jesus wasn't doing. Jesus wasn't floating around in a pontoon boat drinking middle light listening to Miranda Lambert. All right? The truth is, you ain't worshiping God. You're worshiping yourself. Just be honest. And you guess what? You broke the first commandment again. So, why you just can't win, can you? But as God moves into the fifth commandment, he moves from our horizontal relationship with him, in, or our vertical relationship with him, into our horizontal relationship with other people. He moves out of our connection to God to how we interact with our neighbors and our families. And he does that in the fifth commandment by saying, honor thy father and thy mother. Respect your parents. Kids, listen up. There's a commandment here for you that God expects you to obey. And I think it's interesting and significant that when God speaks to the covenant people of God, the kids are not off somewhere coloring pictures and putting stickers on one another. God says to the kids, hey, y'all listen up. And I expect you to honor your parents. So kids, understand this, that God is the final and true authority in your life. But God has put other authorities in your life, your teacher, your pastors, police officers. Those people are divine authority. But the first authority is your parents. And God expects you to obey them as you would obey him. Why? Because God loves family. And the nuclear family of a mother and a father and children, that is the foundation for society. And when the family falls apart, the civilization falls apart. So I don't know if I necessarily believe that. Well, go home and turn on your TV because you are watching it play out in real color and high definition. And so parents, let me just give you a pro tip. And that is raise your kids as if you believe that they should obey the fifth commandment until they believe they should obey the fifth commandment. How many of y'all know that in our culture we've got a massive problem because we can't tell the difference between men and women? We've got another massive problem because we can't tell the difference between parents and children. And God expects parents to be the authority in their home. Now, it gets a little more complicated as parents get older and as kids get older, right? And those roles change. But honor your parents as they age. Take care of them, love them, support them, and do what you can for them. The sixth commandment is that uh, we should not murder all human life is valuable because all human life is created in the image of God. It does not matter the person's age. It does not matter the person's race. It does not matter the person's background or their religion or their abilities or their disabilities or their wealth or lack thereof. All human life matters from conception until death. And so God says that it's wrong to take life and to murder. This means that abortion is murder and is an abomination before the sight of God. It means that police activity that is unjust and results in unfair killings is unrighteous and wicked and murder in the sight of God and should be treated as such. It means that we should respect and love other people because even if they are not like us, they still are an image bearer of God. God says in the seventh commandment that we should not commit adultery. Before God formed the nation of Israel and before God founded the church, God performed a wedding ceremony in the Garden of Eden. And he brought a man together with a woman, and he said, you guys come together and become one flesh. And the Christian view of marriage is that when two people are married, they become one flesh, and it's wrong for them to take what has become their partners and give it away to somebody else. It's wrong to take their body that belongs to their spouse and give it away to someone else. It's wrong to take their heart, which belongs to their spouse, and give it away to somebody else. Murder, or, uh, murder is an abomination, son of God, but so is adultery. 
It's wickedness in the sight of God because it dishonors Him and His purpose for marriage. God has given us marriage for the good of humanity, for human happiness, and for the purposes of procreation. And to twist that for our own purposes is sinful in His sight. And this would include flirtation with somebody you're not married to. This would include giving you know, your, your emotions away in an emotional affair to someone you're not married to. It includes using pornography. It includes being lustful and so forth and so on and what have you. Aren't you glad you came to church today? God says you shall not steal. Don't take things that aren't yours because they're not yours. God values human life and so God values human property. And if it doesn't belong to you, don't go take it. Don't let your boss pay you for 40 hours a week when you've only actually worked 25. Amen? Number nine, the Lord says you shall not bear false witness. There's more than one way to steal, folks. You shall not bear false witness. The Lord is a God who loves truth. And God expects His people to love truth. He expects us to tell the truth. When we're asked to report something that's happened in any context, He expects us to tell the truth the best our memory will allow. God expects us to only make promises that we can and will keep. God expects our speech to be filled with integrity to reflect His heart and His goodness. He expects us that when we hear error, that we stand up to it. When somebody comes to you with lies or gossip about somebody else, shut them down and don't listen to it. Don't let them break the ninth commandment. And if they're going to do it anyway, then make them write it down on a piece of paper, then sign it so you can go tell the person they're talking about. That'll shut all that up, I promise. The tenth commandment is that we should not covet. You should not desire anything that another person has that God has not seen fit in His providence to give you. Your neighbor's house is not yours. His car is not yours. His wife or her husband or whatever is not yours. Their positions, their opportunities, their money, those things are not yours. And God says we should be content in Philippians with such things as we have. God does not want you to live in this world as if you are a five-year-old on a playground looking at everything saying, that's mine, that's mine, it's mine. God wants you to live so that other people are blessed. So those are the Ten Commandments. Very, very quick and very, very fast. What does God expect us to do with them? Just to obey them and move on? Or is there a little more to it than that? I think there is. And this is the third big thought we need to keep in our minds. Lest we get the Ten Commandments wrong. Let's talk about the consequences of the Ten Commandments. God has given them to us. Now what? What does God expect us to do? Well, you see in verse number 18... That when the people of Israel received the Ten Commandments, that their response is unusual. They're afraid. They go to Moses and they've heard God speak. And they say to Moses, listen, you can come talk to us, but don't let God talk to us anymore. They say, Moses, we need somebody to, to stand between us and God. Isn't that an amazing thing? What's happening here in the hearts of the people? Here's what's happening. In the hearts of the people, they realize that through the law, this is who their God is. They realize this is what their God expects. And they realize that He is holy and He is righteous and He is good and He is perfect and He is just. And they said, we ain't. That we are none of these things. And so they hear the law of God and they say, we have got a big problem now. And I think their response helps us to see how the law should be used in our lives today. And so I want to give you what theologians have traditionally called the threefold use of the law and talk to you about the three ways we should think about the law today. And the first is that the law functions as a mirror. I look in the law, and I see myself. And it ain't always pretty. See, it's like this. Most all of us probably looked in a mirror before we came to church today, right? And you looked, and you made sure that everything was combed over, and everything was tucked in and hid away, you know, and powdered up, and all that kind of stuff. Made sure that everything looked as good as it possibly could. But you know something about that mirror? 
Two things about your mirror. First of all, your mirror does not care about your feelings at all, does it? You deceive it. I think the problem might be it is honest. Your mirror, it just shows you what's there, right? And if you look in there and you think, man, that looks like there's some extra weight in there. Your mirror don't care. It just tells you the truth. If you look and you think, man, there's not much, as much hair as there used to be there. The mirror does not care about that. What the law of God is designed to do is to reflect who you are, honestly and sometimes brutally. But another thing about that mirror is this. That mirror cannot help you fix what needs fixing, can it? All it does is show you the problem. You look in that mirror and you think, man, I see 15 or 20 pounds there that don't need to be there. The mirror can't help you fix that. You need a treadmill. You look in the mirror and you think, man, my eyebrows are a lot closer together than they used to be. What happened? The mirror cannot help you. You need some tweezers or some hot wax or something, right? You have to look outside of that mirror to find help. And the people of Israel do this in Exodus chapter number 20. They hear the law of God and they look outside of themselves and they say, we need somebody to stand in for us. They look at themselves revealed in the law and say, Lord, have mercy. We need help. Do you get that sense when you hear the law of God? Because when I hear the law of God, and I think about what God says just in the Ten Commandments, there are certain places along the way where I have to go, ouch, because it sticks in me and it hurts me. Think about it with me like this, folks. And I'm just going to be honest with you. Yes, I have committed a federal crime of feeding the wildlife at the national parks. I am not perfect, okay? I have broken speed limit laws. I have paid literally the price and tickets and all that kind of thing. But I can say to you today that as far as I know, as far as I can remember, I have never stolen anything that doesn't belong to me. Now, I'm not talking about office supplies because I don't think that counts. But but even even when I was a kid, you know, as a kid, you walk into a store and and you don't know any better. You take a Mr. Goodbar because, hey, it's there and you just don't know. Even as a kid, as far as I know, I've never stolen anything at all like that from a, a person or from a business. I can say to you honestly before God, I have never committed adultery. Even when I was a kid, never one time committed adultery. But if you look closely at the Ten Commandments, when the Lord finishes up and He says in the Ten Commandments, you shall not covet, what's God saying? He's saying this is not just about what you do externally. It's about who you are in the heart. And when Jesus lived in this world and preached about the Ten Commandments, he said the same thing. You know what Jesus said? Jesus said, if you've lusted after somebody you're not married to, you're guilty of adultery in your heart. I'm just going to be honest with you all, that changes things for me a little bit. Jesus says that if we are angry with somebody without cause, we are guilty of murder because we have devalued the image of God in that person. And so what happens when I read the law of God the way Jesus read it? I'm going to tell you all, it crushes me. It kills me. And I need help. In fact, Jesus went even further. In Matthew chapter number 22, verses 37 through 40, somebody asked Jesus what the greatest commandment is. And he says, listen, he said, here it is. You can boil everything in the Old Testament down to these two principles, these two laws. And they are that you should love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. And secondly, you should love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says that in the law, in the Ten Commandments, you find a picture of the kind of life that you owe God your maker. This is the picture of the kind of life that you should be able to present to God. And there's not a single one of us that can do it, can we? 
There's not a single one of us that can say, Lord, I have checked every box. I have obeyed every rule. And Lord, I am good. I have to come to God honestly and say, Lord, I cannot do this. I have to come to God exactly the way the people of Israel do in Exodus 20 and say, I need somebody to stand between me and God. I need a Savior. And thank God we keep reading the Bible and we learn that Savior's name. And we learn about a Savior who perfectly kept the law of God for us. But in His death, He was treated as all lawbreakers should have been treated so that He could welcome us into the family of God. What I'm saying to you is that yes, our God is the God of Mount Sinai whose law pushes us away and says you are not welcome because you are not like me. But our God is also the God of Mount Calvary. And there from that mountain He says you are welcome to come. The way has been opened for lawbreakers like you and you are welcome to Jesus. The law cannot save me. But it can point me to the fact I need a Savior. And it can point me to who that Savior is. And I'll tell you something else it does. As a bonus. The law tells me here what Jesus, my Savior, has given me. When the Bible talks about our righteousness being filthy rags, it's saying you lay yourself along the side of the law and see how good you're doing. But when the Bible says in Jesus we have His righteousness, it's a saying that He has given us His perfect obedience to the Old Testament law. So that if we are in Jesus today, if He is our Savior, He looks at us and says, I don't see any adulterers down there. I've never heard them take the Lord's name in vain. I can't look back over a single weekend where they've dishonored the Sabbath. I can't see that they've ever worshipped anything other than me. Because my son did it in their place. The second use of the law is the civil use of the law. We just don't have time to talk about all this. I wish that we did. It's a conversation that our country desperately needs to have. But suffice to say, in short, societies and civilizations are governed best when they are governed most closely to the law of God. Even if a culture is not trying to be overtly Christian or uh, overtly obedient to the law of God, a society is blessed when everybody in that society says, hey, it's wrong to murder people. When everybody in that society says, you know, it's not good to steal. It's not good to commit adultery. When everybody understands that, that society is blessed. And I'm, I'm so amazed that we read our Bibles. And we read the Old Testament law. We kind of read it half-heartedly, don't we? I mean, our eyes glaze over. You reading through your Bible starting in January, and man, about February, March, you get in Leviticus, and it's, it's tough, ain't it? And we think, Lord, look at this law. It's so laborious, and it's so, so exhausting. But do you know that in my Bible, the law of God, it takes up about that much part, that much of my Bible. And we think it's so big. We think it's so vast. The next time you refinance your house, go into that lawyer's office and look at all those volumes of Alabama law that he has in there. Massive, massive books that are thousands of pages long that govern everything down to how much rainwater you can legally collect. God's law is simple because God's law is perfect. And it's for the good of people. But the third use of the law is the one I want to really hammer on before we leave. And that is the third use of the law shows us what our lives should look like now. If we are in a relationship with Jesus, the law shows us how we should be righteous now. You see, here's how the law should work in our hearts. We should look at the law and we should say, I can't do this. There's no way. The law does nothing for me but condemns me. And so I need somebody to do this for me. And I know that Jesus has done that. And I call out to him and say, Lord, make me righteous. Save me. Lord, forgive me. Lord, fix me. Lord, reorient me. Lord, change me. 
And the Lord does that in His grace. But the moment that we believe in Him by faith, Jesus doesn't just give us a righteous standing before the law. Jesus moves inside of us so we will obey the law. So that we will be righteous people. So that we will honor Him. See, Jesus says in John chapter 14, He says that if we love Him, we will keep His commandments. Now that presents a problem for most of us because, you know, some of these have some fine points on them that hurt us. But if we know Him, if we love Him, we will obey Him. But here's what the Apostle Paul said about this. One of the most, I think one of the most important verses in all the Bible. Romans 8, uh, verse 3 and 4. God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. The problem in the law is not the law. The law is perfect and holy and righteous and good. The problem with the law is us because we can't keep the law. So here's what God did. He said he sent his son in the likeness of flesh, in a body, and he sent him for sin. And in Jesus, he condemned sin in a human body in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. The same God who spoke on Sinai, who died on Calvary, lives inside us now so that we can live a righteous and a holy life that honors God and brings glory to Him. See, this is what the Old Testament prophets longed for. This is what they preached about. This is what they predicted. Jeremiah, in Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 33, he says that one day the Lord would make a new covenant. And what's he going to do in that covenant? Verse 33, he says, I will put my law where? Within them. And I will write it on their hearts, and he will be our God, and we will be his people. See, as the people of God now, we don't just read the law of God in our Bible. We don't just see the law of God written on tablets. We don't just see the monument to the Ten Commandments on the courthouse lawn. But that law is written inside of us. Our hearts have been changed so that we are going to be obedient people. And why? Because this God has said, those will be my people. And I will make them my own. And out of his great love for us, we respond and say, Lord, make us a people that honor you. Make us a people that show your glory. Make us a people that reflect your righteousness. Now, as our musicians come and as we stand together today, I would ask you how you're doing laying your life alongside the law of God. But it's probably not great, is it? All of us can look at places and think, man, I blew it there, buddy. That's a real serious problem. But we should each and all of us be thankful for Jesus because Jesus is the one who took the fall for us. Jesus is the one who faced the storm of God's wrath that the people of Israel couldn't face so that you and I could walk into God's blessing. And I would ask you today, do you know this Savior? Are you still maybe trying to be good enough Maybe you're here today because you think, this is how I can turn over a new leaf. And this is how I can be good enough and get God to love me. Man, I want you to know, you're only going to love Him when you realize how much He loved you. And He's shown that to you in the cross of the Lord Jesus. But also know that some of us know all of that stuff, but we are not really living as if we believe what we believe, are we? Our righteousness, really day to day, doesn't reflect the righteous heart of our God. Maybe today you've been convicted and you've said, Lord, I want to show your glory because you've been so good to me. What I'm going to ask you to do as we sing this great song that invites us to come, I'm going to invite you just right where you are to bow in your place, maybe over your seat. Thank the Lord for Jesus and ask Him, God, help me to obey 
to show your righteousness. Let's sing.